If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography, using approaches that make sense but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After Series Radio. So what makes us unique as a species? There's many that have pointed to the development of our frontal lobe, which allows us to have access to higher order thinking abilities like planning, organization, impulse control. But one of the largest things that separates us from other species on the planet is language. We know that animals communicate, that's for sure, but no other species has the complexity of language that we do as humans. And if you think about how we learn language, it's quite remarkable. I don't remember a time where I didn't know language or that it was really hard developing our first words. It almost seems like language just occurs spontaneously. Um, I've had a few kids and it's really fun to watch them develop that really early on they're listening, absorbing, paying attention, and can start to follow commands um, like where's your ears, where's your toes. Even before they can say those words they're starting to associate ears with these floppy things on the side of our head. And it's quite remarkable. And then their first words are adorable um, when they start to say mama and dada. And it's so special because you know that that means you, um, that they are starting to associate those words with you. And it's just incredible. And as children age, that continues to develop where their language and vocabulary begins to grow exponentially. And it doesn't take a ton of effort, which is interesting. So I think about like how focused I had to be to learn sports and the coordination that it took and to learn the rules of like basketball, which is my favorite sport. It took a lot of time to learn how to dribble right-handed um, and then discover, oh, you got to learn how to dribble left-handed too and then dribble going towards the hoop, side to side, going backwards. It took a lot of time a lot of coaching to develop all those skills necessary to be competent at basketball. And then I think about language acquisition and it seems to occur almost naturally. So we've looked at that. How does language develop? And one of those theories is based on relational frame theory. So we are first presented with an image. So imagine you see an apple. And as a kid, you're taught that that nice little round red orb is called an apple. So you associate the word apple with the actual fruit that you can touch and hold in your hand. So that's taught. And then as you start to grow up a little bit further, you're taught that the word 
or the letters A-P-P-L-E spells apple. Oh, A-P-P-L-E spells apple. And A-P-P-L-E is the same thing as that little piece of fruit. So now you've learned a few different things. Um, you can also see a picture of an apple. It's like, yeah, that's the same thing as that real piece of fruit. Or even read the word apple, and it's like, yeah, that's a piece of fruit. So some of these associations with the actual fruit apple are taught very specifically. We're taught the letters A-P-P-L-E. And we learn the word apple and associate with that fruit way before we learn how to spell apple or even how to pronounce that. And so some of these are taught, like A-P-P-L-E spells apple. And it may not be taught that A-P-P-L-E also stands for that actual piece of fruit. Or A-P-P-L-E is the same thing as that picture of an apple. That those associations kind of happen. They're derived. They just kind of show up. So that's what makes a relational frame, is you start to have all these associations and networks with something real and tangible like a piece of fruit. And that's how language develops, is it just starts to kind of spider away from that. And you learn that, oh, there's other types. Oh, apple's a type of fruit. It looks like orange a type of fruit. Oh, there's a word for orange. O-R-A-N-G-E spells orange. And it just kind of goes on from there. Oh, there's a potato. Oh, I don't, potato's round and you can eat it, but I, I don't think it's a piece of fruit. Oh, that's a different kind of thing. So language evolves by comparing, associating, linking meanings, finding things that are similar and different. And that's how words can spread and how our vocabulary can grow so quickly. Even though that we're not taught about each little conjunction or what the means or you should put a but in there or an a kids just kind of figure it out and it truly is remarkable and i think about how meaningful language is in communicating things you can communicate um, where food is or where a nice spring water is so i think about how necessary language would have been um, for our ancestors a long time ago just for survival oh this is where you can find food oh by the way there's a pack of hyenas over there let's stay away from that so language really helped us protect ourselves from dangers in the outside world and where we needed to go for food and shelter really helpful for that but language really was designed to describe things in the outside world that was the purpose of it but as we continued to progress, we started to use language to describe things in the internal world, which is meaningful. I think as a psychologist, I spent a lot of time labeling things in our inside world, like emotions, types of thoughts, physical sensations. That's a lot of the work I do is, is putting labels on things that you can't really see that maybe don't even exist in the outside world in the same way that an apple exists. But the language is really helpful in understanding ourselves and communicating our thoughts and needs and desires to other people. So even though language is a wonderful thing, there's, there's kind of a dark side to it, a downside to it. So relational frame theory is part of the basis for acceptance and commitment therapy, which I always thought was fascinating, that a mental health therapy that's a very much a behavioral approach that uses mindfulness is also based on a linguistics theory that you can research and study, act 
did not create relational frame theory. That's been around a lot longer. There's lots of books about it. You can study that. But ACT has looked at how the formation of language contributes to mental health struggles. And it's incredible when you start to think about it. Why is it that our species, humans, can have all their basic needs met and are still not happy? If you think about animals, like I've got a dog and that dog has a simple life. If I pet that dog and let it have intense eye contact with me when I come home from work, it's happy. If there's water in its dish, it'll drink it. If there's food in the bowl, she'll eat it. It doesn't look at that bowl of food and say, oh, but that's, that's Purina. That has a high fat content. And you know, that food goes right to my hips. Oh, in the bowl, it's, it's a blue bowl. And I used to date this other dog that used to have a blue collar. And oh, I miss them. I, I'm, I'm just too sad to eat now. Dogs don't do that. If they're hungry, they eat. If they're thirsty, they drink. They don't have that language to have all those associations with things like food, water, and shelter. That's what we do. So language can help us communicate all kinds of things. But those associations that we just create based on living can cause problems in our life. So I think about um, my oldest when she was a little girl. We were living in this neighborhood and there were a couple of cats. And she would go up to the cats and pet them because most of the cats were friendly and nice. So she always had positive experiences with cats. Until one day there was a cat um, that my they didn't see my daughter coming. And she runs up to it and pets it. And the cat reared back and scratched her in the face. And you should have seen the look on my daughter's face. I mean, she lost it. I mean, she was angry, just crying. She was scared. She was just sobbing. She had no idea what had happened. Because up until that point, all those little soft, fuzzy creatures were safe. They were pleasant. They would purr and kind of rub their body on your legs. But this cat hurt her. And it was amazing what kind of happened after that. So if we were walking down the street, and we might even say casually, oh, there's a cat. Just hearing that word, she would startle. And there may not have even been a cat present. Just saying that word... There's a startle response. Or she might even see a dog where she's never had a negative experience with a dog. But a dog kind of looks like a cat. It's a four-legged thing running around. And so she has this automatic association with, ah, if a cat could scratch me, that's a different kind of cat. Maybe that could hurt me too. So that's where a lot of phobias come from, a lot of fears where we have a negative association. And that generalizes to other things. So, like for me, I'm not a big fan of spiders. Um, they kind of scare me as they do a lot of people. Um, but occasionally we'll trap a spider in a little spider trap. And this might sound strange, but I intentionally take my time looking at those spiders, getting comfortable with those fear sensations. Because I know the spider's stuck on the sticky trap. It's not going to harm me. And that is kind of my own form of exposure to get comfortable with that spider. But what happens is you just hear the word spider... Ooh, and you can feel it kind of crawling on you. Um, or if somebody just makes the, like the scuttling noise a spider would make on linoleum, that might get you. Or if you just see an image of a spider, or even just see the word printed in a magazine, you might have that same visceral reaction, even though an actual spider is not even present. That is the power of language. 
language is so associated with actual events that it becomes real. And that's often where a lot of phobias come from and a lot of social anxiety, you name it. And so how that continues to escalate is we can start to label things like anxiety. Let's use that as an example. The word anxiety came from a French term, which just meant a sensation of feeling stuck in the throat. That's it. Just describing that sensation that we've probably all experienced when we're anxious. It's like, yeah, our mouth dries up. It's kind of hard to swallow. That's all anxiety meant was a sensation of feeling stuck in the throat. Now we use anxiety to describe all kinds of things that I can't go to that party. I have anxiety. I can't give a presentation. I have social anxiety disorder. I can't ask that person out. I have anxiety. Because we can label something, our mind now says that is real. Like right now I'm sitting in a truck. I can see it. I can touch it. The steering wheel is right in front of me. This is a truck. So our mind's like, yeah, that word truck is associated with a real thing. That same thing happens with anxiety. Our mind's like, well, you labeled it anxiety. It must be real. So if you go to that party and feel more anxious, that's making your anxiety worse. Maybe you should avoid that party. And that's how anxiety grows. The more we avoid the sensation of feeling stuck in the throat, the stronger and bigger it gets. Our mind doesn't know the difference between truck and a real truck and anxiety and the sensation. It's different than having an anxiety tumor in our body that's going to grow whenever we feel anxious. That's not how it works. Actually, anxiety gets more manageable and more controllable the more you expose yourself to things that cause anxiety. But all of us, all part of us is programmed to avoid pain. And we need that for our species to survive. Because pain in the outside world might equate to injury or death. So our mind's like, yeah, pain in the inside world probably means the same thing. Let's avoid it. And so we have words today like normal and abnormal. And so we think like, okay, if there's a normal and an abnormal, any type of suffering must be abnormal and I need to get rid of it. That's got to be suffering or that's got to be life-threatening. If I feel uncomfortable, I got to get rid of it. And so just being able to label something normal actually might cause problems in our life. So ACT even has a term for that, destructive normality. If we think that a certain emotional state or thought process is normal, we can now compare our own thought process and emotions. And if it's different, we can say, yep, that's abnormal. There's a problem there. We got to fix it. So if you have a belief and beliefs are formed in language, your belief might be it's normal to be happy. Therefore, if I'm not happy all the time and experience sadness or pain or discomfort, that must be abnormal. And I've got to get rid of that. I've got to be normal. And that's just word, a word game that's causing us problems. So I've worked with a lot of folks that experience depression. And depression is a natural part of living. Whenever you don't have access to things in your life that are meaningful from relationships to adequate housing to financial security to interests and hobbies anytime we're not able to access those we feel down so removing reinforcers from your life is a recipe for developing depression that's part of what we experienced but what i found is some people start 
to get depressed about their depression because they can label it as something that's now bad or broken or wrong. They've got to get rid of it. And the more they struggle with feelings of depression, the bigger it gets. And I've seen that same thing with anxiety. Some people get really anxious about having anxiety. And anxiety loves that fear. It just fuels it. And the same thing is true with pornography concerns. If you can label your sexual urges or viewing sexual images, even when you don't want to, as a pornography addiction, your mind now says, you have a serious disease. You need to eradicate it. And our mind starts to associate any sexual urges, thoughts, desire, sexual behaviors with an addiction, with a disease. And part of that is just a product of language. Because we now have a term for it and a word, it's now a problem that we have to get rid of. And our mind is not going to settle down until it's completely gone. So if you have the belief that I can completely eradicate sexual urges in my, in my life, in my thoughts, my urges, your mind's going to say, well, that must be possible. If I can think it, it must be. Just like this truck is real. The thought of I can completely control sexual urges and desire all the time must be just as real. And that is a trick of language. And so uh, how acceptance and commitment therapy comes in is we start to look at the role of language and how having these thoughts and beliefs might contribute to us getting stuck in them. Because we can label ourselves as having a problem, we now are faced with a situation where we've got to fix it. We've got to get rid of it. And yet there's things in life that we can't get rid of and probably aren't even problematic, like thoughts, urges, and emotions. Just noticing thoughts, urges, and emotions can be enough to allow you to make decisions in your life that are consistent with your values. But what happens is the second we start to evaluate those thoughts, emotions, and urges as bad, wrong, sinful, unnatural, or an addiction, it's now something that we've got to conquer. That is the power of language. And why I find mindfulness to be so effective um, in things with anxiety, depression, trauma, compulsive pornography viewing, instead of labeling these constructs or making them something that we now have to battle and fight, we can just understand the human parts, the thought part, the emotions, the physical sensations, the urges, and we can do something with that. We don't need to label them as a major problem that now our mind has to battle with, we can understand those as information. Thoughts, emotions, urges are just information trying to guide you to navigate your environment. They're not the problem. The second we start to label them and battle with them, it becomes its own problem and because it becomes its own struggle. So I often think about people that say they're addicted to pornography often have more of an addiction to being addicted to pornography. They're stuck in this battle with having an addiction. And when we start to step back from kind of that language struggle and see that, oh yeah, we have urges, but those urges don't have to dictate your behavior, that you get to choose those. Instead of creating more and more associations with sexual urges, that's just going to make it even more difficult to change behavior. Let's start to create even more pathways and associations with values, with relationships, things that you really care about, things that matter in your life.
So the principle that I really like is whatever you feed grows. Whatever you water grows. So if you're feeding sexual concerns with focusing on them, battling them, of course they're going to grow. If, instead, if you're focused on improving your relationships, improving your health, improving your learning, those are going to grow. Relationships are going to blossom. Learning is going to accelerate. It's wherever our attention is and our focus is. So I think about you're either doing things or, well, let me restate that. Our mind can only do things. It can't not do things. So if you're trying to not struggle with sexual concerns, you're struggling with sexual concerns. Our mind can only do. And that's the power of language. So instead of trying to not do something, focus your effort on things that you really want out of life. So those are my thoughts on language. Um, language is an amazing thing. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about that, feel free to pick up an act book, watch some of my videos um, where I talk about the role of language. In the first Life After series program we offered for pornography, I spent a lot of time talking about how language contributes to people's struggles with pornography. And it's amazing. And it's not something I would have thought of when I first began my career as a psychologist. I never really thought that language plays such a vital role in mental health. It does. We can't escape it. We're swimming in language all the time. So instead of battling with it, let's learn the rules that it operates and we can use it to make our lives better. Hey, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is. Issues like anxiety challenges in dealing with emotions, or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography. And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. Difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research-supported principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment showing effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets, the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description, or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley. See you on the inside.